0: Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled to have on an unbelievable guest today. His name is a retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Chris Strickland, and he is was one of the most elite fighter pilots in the country, uh, having flown combat missions and then was an instructor for the F-15 and then joined the uh, extremely like, like, like the top of the top in the U S air force, which is the, um, the Thunderbirds, which is the F 16, uh, pilots that just show how awesome the jet is and how awesome the air force is. And, um, that, that would be enough. Like that, 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 that's a cool story already and the leadership lessons he got in being someone that spent many, many years serving this country and growing in his career, but then also what's unbelievable is that he survived a a, a near death crash the the details are insane as he as he will relate them and how he's parlayed that experience the trauma that that inflicted upon his life into doing the meaningful work he's doing now we speak a lot about overcoming difficulties getting on track what it means how do you break through that really thick barrier so even though you might not have flown uh you know the uh, the top jets in the country there's a lot of very practical lessons so with a tremendous uh sense of gratitude and appreciation for his service to this country and uh, coming on the podcast and speaking it gives me great pleasure to introduce retired u.s air force colonel chris strickland ladies and gentlemen As always, Lift Your Legacy is committed to helping you live a more authentic and meaningful life. That being said, if I could ask you to share this podcast with someone that you think would get value from the message, that would be fantastic. In addition, I wanted to make you aware that along with the podcast, I do offer executive coaching. I help People who are successful and highly motivated, who want to see extreme, or not even so extreme, maybe just a small change in their life. I wanna help them get to the next level. What does that mean specifically? Creating more peace in your relationships with yourself, growing your business, clarifying your career, And even if you need a little bit of help, losing some weight or getting more healthy, I do that also. I'm not for everyone, but for those people that are invested in making their life better and taking the next step, I highly recommend you consider me as a coach for you. Now, how do you get in touch? Well, you found the podcast. I wanted to tell you also my email, Jacob, my first name, jacob at liftyourlegacy.live feel free please to reach out there or on any or all of my social media channels. I'd be thrilled to give you a complimentary half an hour conversation to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And now with no further ado, I ask you to please sit back and enjoy the show. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. As I mentioned in our pre-call, we are huge fans of the Air Force and uh, F-16 and the fact that you're uh, in a part of the Thunderbirds is like, it's outstanding and amazing. And, you know, of of all the people that dream of flight, flying at the level that you were able to achieve, and then the crazy story that you have after that, tell us a little bit about how you got into the Air Force, into flying. Was this like part of how you grew up?
1: Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on today. It's great to talk to you. And yeah, the Thunderbirds are a pretty amazing organization. And how I got in, I get asked this question a lot. I'm a small town Alabama boy. My dad worked in construction. Uh, and honestly, I wanted out of Alabama and I wanted to fly. So my dad got me on some corporate uh, jets and helicopters to kind of spark my, my inspiration to flight. And I found the uh, Air Force was a perfect path to go do that. They put me through the Air Force Academy. And allowed me to fly the f-15 in the beginning part of my career so that's kind of how small town alabama boy ended up in there i didn't know how hard it would be and i just said i'm gonna go do this and it that worked amazing. out for me
0: so so i i have a feeling that of, of all the people that want to go into into being a pilot the f-15 the f-16 that's like the top of the line
1: right of course it is it's amazing to fly right? those fighter aircraft and and you know the process to get through that from the 25,000 people that put in for the Air Force Academy to the 1,000 people to go to pilot training to the 35 F15 pilots we make a year it's a pretty incredible competition level to get in there.
0: So what were some of the things that kept you going through that through that very rigorous process? Like was it did you did you have any like developments in how you thought like what kept you going?
1: It was it was the inspiration to go I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly a fighter aircraft, I wanted to go 1400 miles an hour, and I wanted to fly it in combat. And that is what kept me focused every day. It doesn't matter how hard it is, if you have a clear goal to end up with. And that was my goal down the road. So that's what drove me through all those long nights, all the long hours of training to be a fighter pilot, but it was well worth it.
0: So tell me a little bit about your career as a fighter pilot.
1: So I started out, like we said, I graduated the Air Force Academy, went into F-15 training, did a combat assignment in the F-15, flew over Iraq, over in Bahrain, some areas like that. And then when I came back, I had the opportunity to go to the schoolhouse. So I became an F-15 instructor in my second assignment and went down the road to Tyndall Air Force Base. And I always say, you know, like I just said, you got to have clear goals that you want to go. And I wanted to be an instructor pilot and a combat pilot in the F-15. And, you know, I hit my late 20s and went, I'm there. I made it and what now because it had always motivated me day to day and what do I shoot for now and a friend of mine a mentor of mine pulled me into a room and said hey what do you want to be when you grow up and I said I don't know I'm struggling for that and he introduced the Thunderbirds to me and said have you ever thought about this and I said I haven't so I went home and talked to my wife and we decided it's something we wanted to do so I went through the process to become a Thunderbird went out and flew with them which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute. After my Thunderbird assignment, I served in the Pentagon as the pilot career field manager, which is an incredible opportunity to work in the uh, Pentagon with twenty five thousand of your closest friends. Uh, and after there, I did some schooling. I went on to do some command assignments and finished up my career at Beale Air Force Base in California before I retired about two years ago.
0: That's amazing. How has these transitions? How like one of the one of the one of the things that I always like to find out is that. You know, we really get set on these goals sometimes when we're young. And then when we start achieving the goals, it's, it is difficult to kind of figure out the next step. So after having so many career transitions, what are you thinking about when you see, again, even just like the idea of retiring, how do you set up new goals for yourself? Or how do you talk yourself through these transitions in your life?
1: Well, I always like to call it a success plateau. Okay. When type a personalities work that hard to get to a goal, when you achieve the finish line. You kind of go, huh, what now? And you've got to find the next goal. Because what I found in life is it's not about the goals or the finish lines. It's about the journey in the middle. It's about the people you meet along the way, the accomplishments you have going forward. And it has very little to do with your title, with success as we traditionally define it. And I challenge people to do that. Most of the time, if if we meet in a room and I say, will you introduce yourself? Give me your name and what you do. Most people say, Hi, I'm Chris Strickland. I'm president of Dunn University. And they give me a title off a business card. That tells me nothing about you. And they really don't embrace who they are or more importantly, why they do it every day. Realize that in business, we spend more time with the people in our office than we do with our families, with our kids. And you go, why are you doing it? It's not for a paycheck. I've never had a job in my life. I've always had a career. And what I mean by that is a job is when you come in and punch the time and you're doing it for the paycheck. We all need to get paid, that's part of life, but we need to embrace the why we do what it is we do, why we devote our lives to the to the mission we have, to the goals we have, to getting up every day, and that is what ultimately drives that success and the satisfaction at the end of the day, the
0: week, or our life. That's amazing. Tell me a little bit about, in, in the people that you interacted with, either with the Thunderbirds or when you were a combat uh, pilot, how many of those of, of those individuals have it's like, just like high octane, like, it's, I, I feel like no one has like a chilled out personality. You just have to go, you go fast. Is that kind of like a general rule for life it, in this kind of area?
1: It is, especially with fighter pilots. We're all type A personalities. When you put us all in a room, my wife used to joke, if we go out to eat, she goes, if people didn't know you, they would think you hated each other because you're always poking and prodding and, and challenging each other and being in competition with each other. But that's what makes us who we are. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And if you find those other people are always challenging you to be a better yourself, then you need to challenge them back. And ultimately, it drives us to higher levels of performance every day.
0: Do you find it difficult interacting with the rest of the world that uh, moves at a slower pace? (laughs) I
1: do. I do. So my wife reminds me uh, often that the world does not move at fighter pilot speed. They're not used to flying around at, at twice the speed of sound, pulling G's, and, and I have to, in my business world, I put suspenses, I put deadlines on everything, and I assure them it's not for them, it's for me, because yeah. I'll give you a task and turn around and go, are you done yet? But right. if I put a deadline on it, I can't ask you before that deadline, and it, it helps me temper my speed to even out with the uh, environment I'm in.
0: So it's very interesting because a lot of high performers that I know oftentimes find themselves at, 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 at odds with the world around them and tr- feel like there's something wrong with them. Like, I just have to chill out or calm down. And what you're saying is you just have to put the, syst- the systems in your life where you're able to still kind of be yourself, but at the same time allow other people to be themselves. It's all about living intentionally in everything you do. And,
1: and I'm like that in every hour of my day, as you can imagine, when I come in in the morning, I have an incredible schedule of, of what I'm going to accomplish for the day. But if I back off to a slower pace, then I'm lowering my bar for the environment I'm in, as opposed to challenging other people to be more intentional about every minute you're sitting in a meeting, what's the purpose of the meeting? Why are we going to have lunch together? And it causes us to be more deliberate in everything we do.
0: That's amazing. So... Very decorated career uh, served, served our country for a very long time. You had a very i guess you can call it public just tell us a little bit about the, about what you, the ordeal that you that you survived and how you went through it maybe if you could just take us through a little bit about the the, the crash that, that you that you endured
1: okay so uh, as I went out to be the th- uh, thunderbird, I was a solo. So realize that Thunderbirds are divided into six pilots. Four of them are the diamond that fly the graceful formation you see all the time and the other two are the solos. And their task was showing the high performance of the F-16. And so I took off last. I was the last Thunderbird to take off and my opening maneuver was the max climb split S. So I took off, went straight up, flipped over on my back and did the back half of a loop to exit the opposite direction from where I came. And on this day, back in 2003, As I took off, something went wrong. And as I rolled over on my back and started to pull, once I passed, what I had been taught was the abort area. So basically, that means I can't roll out and just avoid the back half of the maneuver. I knew I was going to crash, and I didn't have the altitude to finish the maneuver. So the entire flight was 25.25 seconds from takeoff to explosion. Think about what you do in 25 seconds. For me, first of all, it was about three hours long. Temporal illusion, temporal distortion slows down everything around you. So as I pulled through the backside of the loop, I thought about ejecting. I knew I was outside the envelope, which what that means is I was outside the capability of the ejection seat I was sitting on, and I wouldn't survive. And I looked out and saw the people there. I wanted to make sure the aircraft was not going to tumble in their direction. And at the very last moment, as I started to get the ground rush of the ground coming up, I commanded ejection 140 feet above the ground, one half second before impact. I left the
0: aircraft sorry, sorry, 40 things. Sorry, sorry you're, it's going a little, I, I, I want to just, I want to build that up for one second. So you're, you, you realize that there's nothing you can do at, at a certain point in the flight. You can't even eject, you're saying that that was, Correct. Like, you couldn't even eject. You were completely helpless. The, inter, the The plane was going down very quickly. You, first of all, you made sure that it was far away from, the from from the onlookers and then right. say, one more time explain a little bit the the, the mechanics of it how you managed to so, eject the last second so at the very last minute i got ground rush so basically you see that last
1: minute the ground's coming up to meet you like it you don't want it to and as i get that i know it's the last chance for me to command ejection so actually
0: what's your mind was anything going through your mind at this point do you remember it
1: i'm going to tell you i remember everything i remember it frame by frame because if you think about your memory you tend to not remember videos, you remember stills. Sure. So I remember it frame by frame of everything that was happened, microseconds. I'm watching the canopy, I'm watching it come off the aircraft. I'm watching everything happen. As the rockets fired to get me out of the aircraft, I watched the smoke billow around my legs and you know that's instantaneous. It's amazing how much went through my training. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm trying to figure out what happened and it was kind of like a uh, Monday morning quarterback yeah, I was thinking about the maneuver as I flew it that day. I went back and played in my mind some of the maneuvers I had flown before and kind of put them side by side to figure out what was different. And I'm also thinking about my family. I'm thinking about everything that I went through in life in addition to flying. People say you had to be upset. You had to be nervous as you're going through. And I say it was the most calm I ever was in my entire life. What are you People, talking about? Air Force, Air Force training at its best. Because in my mind, I had thought through that maneuver, I had pre-planned ejection, every fighter pilot does, so that you know what your actions and reactions are. And so I had this calmness through my body of, I just have to do it like I trained to do. And it wasn't till well after the ejection that the adrenaline wore off. and, And I started, my heart rate went through the roof. But for the entire maneuver, I was incredibly calm, and that is the benefit of our military and the way they train. The way we go into combat, the way we go into flights is so that we can be calm in the face of adversity like this.
0: How, how do you, I guess, besides just rehearsing over and over again, um, how do you apply that to, sorry, just to jump out of there and we'll go back very quickly, but how does one apply that Someone who doesn't have the benefit of going through, you know, the top the top military training. How does a person a, a, attempt to apply that kind of thinking? I mean, b- because what what I'm hearing is just the unbelievable nature of the human mind that you could literally be crashing an F-16 and one second away from complete destruction. And like you said, you're. It sounds like you were at like a like a like a spa and just you know like your mind was completely at at ease. So how does one try to put that into their life if they, if they don't spend years training? It's about planning.
1: If you think about a plan for anything you're going to do in your life, you have a primary plan of how it should go. And then you think about the contingencies of how it could go wrong, how it could go different. Who else gets a say in that, that you can't control? And as you think through those plans, the contingencies, and every time you have a contingency plan, know the first three actions you're going to take if that contingency plan happens. And that way, it's proactive. And while you're taking those first three steps that you've mapped out, then in your mind, you can be thinking about the next three steps you're gonna take. And it allows you to be in front of a situation as opposed to being reactive.
0: That's amazing. So you you eventually land, I mean, cause like a, a parachute will come up after you eject from the plane, correct? That's how that's how these things work? It, it
1: will. So, so what happens is, Uh, I command ejection by pulling a a handle that's between my legs. Rockets fire to propel me out of the aircraft and away from the ground. So I'm literally riding a rocket. A (laughs) drogue chute comes out of the uh, seat that pulls my main parachute out. I separate from the seat that I'm in and go under main parachute. For me, I was so low, the parachute opened and stopped my forward momentum. But as I swang underneath the parachute, I hit the ground. No swings in the parachute. They say it's the equivalent of jumping off of a three-story building and landing on your feet. But I had so much adrenaline going that the one thing I did outside of training is I stuck the landing. I landed on my feet, didn't roll out of it. I'm two and a half inches shorter today because of the way I hit the ground. Oh, my goodness. And if you think about that, I landed. And I will tell you, I'm standing there on the ground. I don't see any flames. I don't feel any heat. Turns out I was in part of the fireball. And oh I'm looking around in such a state of shock. But we've trained for that. Again, fighter pilot's trained to know if we eject, we're going to be in severe shock. And so I, I hit the ground, but I wasn't thinking about any of that. I, when I hit the ground, I felt every good moment of my life, everything that had happened. You know how people say your life flashed before your eyes? I don't believe that at all. Nothing flashed before my eyes, but I had the best feeling I'd ever had in my life of all the positive. And then I'm standing there for what seems like an eternity, looking up at the sky. It was a beautiful day. And then I snapped back to reality and went, oh, my gosh, I was just flying an F-16. What happened? And so in my mind, I go, I must have ejected. Well, fighter pilots are trained to do a post-ejection checklist as we're coming down under parachute. Well, needless to say, I'm standing on the ground now. But I started through my checklist. And the first thing we do is we look up to check our parachute. I didn't have a parachute. So how is it possible I was just flying an F-16, now I'm standing on the ground. My flight suit's not dirty. I landed on my feet. What is going on? And I go, well, I must be, I must be dead, I must not have made it. And you know, we all ask ourselves what happens at that moment when, we, when it happens, and I go, huh, nothing's, nothing's going on. What do I do now? And about that moment, after what seems like another eternity, I see my parachute collapse. And so I realized I did eject and things are happening so fast and I'm, I'm in the smoke of the plane. So I just couldn't see my parachute. And, and I don't know why it is, but when anything happens, we always take our hands and throw them on our face. I, I don't know. So I take my hands, I throw them up to my face and I bring it down I've got blood in my hands and I go, what has happened? And I start to get out of my parachute I still don't see the smoke. I don't feel the heat. I don't see my airplane. I mean, that's the shock that's blocking it from me. So I I look over and I find my other Thunderbirds, I count them in the sky, there's five of them airborne. I see my safety observer and I wave at him so he can tell them I'm okay. I'm about a half mile away from him, I start to walk over. Well, I get about the third step and I go, wait a minute. I'm obviously in shock and can't see everything. I could walk through something that makes this even worse. And so I backtrack my three steps and I lay down where I landed and wait on them to come get me. And it turns out if I would have kept walking, there's a high potential I would have walked through the burning flame of the aircraft that I didn't see. Because you're, you know, our bodies are, are unique things. Sometimes they block things from us, even in real time. But that is, uh, that's kind of the story of how it happened. That's 25.25 seconds of my life.
0: You, you literally didn't see the flames that you were about to walk through.
1: I can see it right now in my mind, the most beautiful blue day I've ever seen. No like, flames.
0: The runway nothing. was clean. It was just like nothing there.
1: I landed in the dirt off the side of the runway, but it was just not there.
0: That's crazy. And then and then you didn't talk about it.
1: I didn't. So I, as you can imagine, I left there on a backboard. I got a helicopter flight to a trauma center. I spent like 12 or so hours. They thought all this horrible stuff was wrong with me. And uh, at about one o'clock in the morning, I've been strapped to the backboard this whole time. The doctor comes in and goes, okay, I recommend you take it slow, but I'm going to unstrap you and, and you can sit up. You're, you're fine. Nothing's broken. Nothing's torn. You're going to walk out of here.
0: <laughs> that's insane.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. Even to think about it this day, it's literally nothing. I'm two and a half inches shorter, but that's it. I have some back problems, but at our age, who doesn't have some back problems, Right. Um, but I, I walked out of the hospital, I and
0: uh, I, <laughs>
1: I walked out of the hospital and returned to my hotel room that night. Oh
0: my gosh! So, so what? What's the what's the recourse after something like that? Like,
1: uh, so there were there were investigations because the Air Force has two investigations. One's a safety investigation internal to the Air Force, so we find out what happened so we can prevent it happening in the future, and the other one is an accident investigation that's publicly released. Uh, So we went through, I mean, ultimately, it was like most aircraft accidents, it was pilot error. There were a lot of contributing factors, but it boils down to everything's the pilot's fault. And uh, we went through that. We learned a lot for the Air Force of how to improve it, how to improve the maneuver, the culture, things like that. And then from that point, uh, they came in and said, where do you want to go? And I went on with my career in the Air Force and never looked back and kind of if the Air Force didn't have to look at it, I didn't have to look at it. One thing I didn't mention is uh, they called my wife. So spouses of the military are always terrified of the blue Air Force car pulling up because a uh, commander puts on their dress uniform, gets their chaplain. That's how we tell a spouse something's happened to their husband or, or wife. And because it was such a public incident in an air show, the Thunderbird One decided to have somebody call my wife so that she didn't get surprised by seeing something on the news. And this is a perfect story of it doesn't matter what is said. It only matters what is heard. And what my wife heard was there had been an accident and I hadn't made it. So you can imagine we both had significant trauma from that. And so we kind of agreed subconsciously to never talk about it. And for 13 years, we literally acted like it didn't happen. We never discussed it. We never talked about it. We just didn't acknowledge it. And, and I say that today, here's my disclaimer, don't do that. That's not good for anybody. Um, and that's what led me to writing the book with Joel, uh, my co-author, is because something happened in my life, it kind of opened the closet of that information. And, and once you cracked the door of that stuff you had never dealt with, it all poured out. And it caused even more trauma dealing with it. So Joel and I love the book we wrote, because we're trying to start a community of survivors like us. But we both say that writing the book was potentially more traumatic than the incidents that led to us writing the book. Because for me, that was a long time to lock things away. And I had to talk about it with my wife. We had to sit down and watch videos together, look at the pictures again. And it was really a, a journey for us to get through that. And you know, people always say, well, how did you deal with that? My answer is I didn't pass tense deal with it. We deal with our traumas every day when we wake up. We, we are the peaks and the valleys that we go through in life. It's back to the journey. We can't have the high points of our life without experiencing the low points. And both of those make us who we are and define our character and our personality. So obviously, I wish it hadn't happened, but it also affected me in a positive way. What Joel and I call is post-traumatic growth because we didn't let our low points take us even lower. We used it to elevate us even higher and make us more intentional in everything we do in our lives.
0: It's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable story. Um, one of the things that really sticks out is, you know, I haven't met Joel, but uh, just speaking to you and, and hearing sort of what you've done with your career, it, it, it's like you're, you're, really, you're, you're a tough guy, and you've done a lot of, really, I mean, you have to be tough to walk Thank from a, uh, from, a, from, a, from a crash like that. But what I'm hearing is going through the emotional trauma, even someone as tough as you couldn't deal with it for 13 years, and when you did deal with it, you saying it, 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 the emotional scars were much worse than the, the incident itself.
1: They were, we call them the invisible scars. Because you know what? If if I broke a leg and I'm walking around in a cast, it's obvious I have something. Right. But so many of our, our military people and our public at large, we all have traumas in our life. Yes. And you never know what is underneath the surface, how they're dealing with it, or who they're dealing with it with. Right? We all need a wingman. You can't do things on your own. And sometimes it's my wife, sometimes it was going through talking to Joel, but we have to have a team of people to help us get through things that we can let our guard down. Because I will tell you, I appreciate what you said, but for a fighter pilot, I put the walls up even thicker because I never wanna show the vulnerability. And since Joel and I published this book, what we found is when we stand up and go, let us tell you about our trauma, about our difficulties, what we find is people embrace us and go, let me tell you what happened in my life. Will you help me deal with this? Will you help me tell my story? And it's back to that community of survivors Because when you're around people like yourself, people with aspirations like yourself, people with invisible scars like yourself, you tend to close the door and you'll be more open with them, which will ultimately heal both of you. The reason I do things like this is every time I tell you my story, first of all, I'll tell you two years ago, I could not have been on video and told you anything we've talked about. Because emotionally, I would have broke down. Emotionally, I would have locked up and put the wall up. So every time I do something like this and partner with somebody like yourself to tell you my story, it gets easier for me. I can go a little bit deeper into the emotions of it. I can go a little bit deeper into the family side of it that I couldn't do on the day before or I couldn't do in front of my wife or, or the book launch party, I'll tell you. It was rough because I never realized that my kids had never been there. It's those kind of things that you're just like, man, I didn't see that coming. I had prepped with my wife. I had never prepped with my kids.
0: Do you, I guess the, the question that, that sticks out is that it's really, especially hearing what you're saying and, and like you said, you know, there's, there are people that the, tra- the trauma doesn't have to be as extreme as someone who's a service member or member of the, the, the police or whatever it might be that, that deals with like, these kind of things, it could just be, but this idea of, of actually bringing the wall down. I guess the the, qu- the question is, to the person that says, I just want to leave the wall up, that maybe I just won't go there. And maybe I'll just live my whole life and never have to look back. What kind of encouragement? Why would you, what do you tell them? Why should they bring that wall down? Knowing, like you just said, that it is tough and that you're never really going to heal and that it gets better over time. But like, why should a person break that wall?
1: Well, you think about it and, and it goes back to, we started talking about success in the beginning. And one of the things I like to ask people is what do you want to do in your life? And most people go, I want to be successful. Okay. Define it for you personally, not in social media, not in the news. How do you define it? And very few people have done that. And then after you define success, what's more important than success is why do you do what you do at the if the finish line? And there's only one finish line in life. It's when you take that last breath. You only, you will know if you were successful and Why did you do what you do? And so for me, when I let that wall down and started to let people get in closer, it allowed me to have richer uh, communications with people, relationships with people. And it let me find out that my concern, my concern was not why my crash happened. That wasn't it. My concern was why I survived. And that's one of those deeper questions of, that was the burden I was carrying every day of, why am I alive when so many other people aren't? When other fighter pilots haven't made it through, what was I left on this earth to do? And and did I do it? And that's the why that defines what I do every day. And you never know. And you never know uh, whether it's something you personally do, or maybe I'm still here because we we have added two kids to our family. Maybe it's something they do. You never know how you're going to influence people in their lives moving forward, or really why any of us are here in this life
0: so then the then the the ultimate expression of of i guess you could say this survivor's obligation would be what to you what is it what does it mean a person that and and again i think it's so important because you know you are such a a rare breed that that the you know, and I, I, it's a hard thing because, you know, you, you look at someone like yourself, you look at people that have really quote unquote accomplished something that, you know, maybe people are finding themselves at 40 or 50 years old and they still haven't achieved what they want to achieve yet. And, but they, but they also, in a lot of ways are survivors of all kinds of bad stuff. Maybe it's bad parenting. Maybe it's, you know, trauma from relationships. Is. What is that obligation to go forward? How does a person, when they say, I, I want, I want to, to I want to live a life like you live. I want to live a life where I can own what happened and I can live fully. What's, what's the first step?
1: So for us, our survivor's obligation is bearing that weight of why am I here and what am I meant to do? And that's the obligation we have for Joel, for people that didn't survive cancer, for me, for fighter pilots that didn't come home, military people that didn't come home or make it through the flight. And that's the obligation to live every day to its fullest. So the way I challenge people to do it is when you lay down at night, close your eyes and ask yourself, if it was my last day on earth, would I have lived it the same way? And, and that's one of those heavy things of very few times can we say yes. I might have had a great day at work, but I got short with one of my kids at home. Or I might have, you know, not been nice to somebody that checked me out at the drive-thru. You think about it, it all factors together in your life. And if you ask yourself every night, if this was my last day, would I have devoted the time and treated people the same way? That will allow you to be more intentional about the way you live tomorrow. And one of these days, you're going to be right if you ask yourself that. Because one of these days, it is going to be your last day on this earth. And you want to make sure that you lived every day to its fullest, that you use all 86,400 seconds in every day to make a difference to those around you.
0: Last, last question for you before, before you tell us where we can find your book. Um, one of the things that is very difficult, and I, I'm sure you can relate to this as a, as, a, as a high performer yourself, is that we spend a lot of times trying to get to where we want to get to. And how does, how does that motivation work in conjunction with what you just said, which is maybe you're not going to get where you want to get to. Or maybe what you're really looking for is not going to be solved by getting that job or getting that promotion or making that amount of money. So how do you both live present and focused on building your future? Well, it's building your future. You focused on professional future, but I'm talking about
1: family and community. Okay. It's work-life balance. And work-life balance is not 50-50. I truly believe that. Because sometimes I'm working long days at the office and cheating my family. Sometimes I'm on vacation with my family and I'm cheating the office a little bit. Today, after we finish this, I'm leaving work early to go to basketball practice with my kids. Right. Is that part of living your intention? I think so. It's not just about titles and professional accomplishments. We're losing it if that's the only thing in life we're focused on, because my wife and I are very deliberate about where we volunteer our time, how we interact with the community and how we raise our kids. That is just as important, if not more than how I stand in my office and live up to the title that's sitting on my business card. It's
0: amazing. Do you, do you miss the speed?
1: I don't. I don't. I get that question all the time. I flew right up until I retired in different aircraft. I had a great opportunity to fly many aircraft in the world. And I've been there, done that. It, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But that was my concern whenever I retired. And not once have I missed it. I will tell you the only thing I have missed is the community I was in. It's not about what you do in the military, it's about the people you do it with. And I do miss that. And now I found that in the business world with my my new business I'm in, but we're always in search of that community more than those titles we think we're chasing.
0: That's amazing. So Chris, tell us a little bit more about how we can find you, find out more about the book, your uh, your current engagements and passions and everything like that.
1: Thank you, sir, I appreciate that. You can find it at all major book retailers. Uh, my website is chrisstrickland.com. You can see some about me and contact me personally, or you can uh, go through our publisher and get case discounts there. But it's really the one thing I would like to close with is Joel and I say, if you finish this book and think it's about his cancer or my aircraft crash, you miss the whole purpose. Those are just what gets you to open the cover and start the conversation. This is about the community of survivors and how we get better every day. So that's my challenge to everybody is if you have an opportunity to read it, reach out to us because Joel and I share every morning the people who have reached out in social media and email. And we tell the stories because that is why we wrote
0: this book. Amazing. Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, sir.